Live from the Talking Joe Studios. It's Talking Joe. Talking Joe Weekly Podcast. Talking Joe's there. Talking Joe thought we would last. Talking Joe is there. Find each other like a married couple. A podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe is the codename for a completely untrained special podcast force. Its purpose, to produce a regular comic review show while breaking and replacing a series of presenters from across the world. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. We are on our soapbox. Nobody seems to care. Fighting for fandom wherever there's trouble. The podcast on the air. Talking Joe is there. Talking Joe. Talking Joe. Talking Joe is on the air. Hey, 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 it's me, Mark, and welcome to Talking Joe, the best and longest running dedicated G.I. Joe comic podcast that comes out on a Thursday. Today we will be looking at G.I. Joe issue 281 with a very special guest. But before we get into all of that, let me introduce the Dr. Frankenstein to my Igor. It's my co-host, Tim. How are you, sir? I'm well. Hi, Mark. And hello, listeners. Yeah, my hello to listeners was implied by my hey, hey, hey. Before we get, uh, yeah, sort of introducing our special guest, I wanted to have a few corrections fall on my G.I. Joe fandom sword again i've got three to cover tim if you bear with me so first correction uh, i previously mentioned that i thought the first appearance of the snow serpent might be in two seven eight other appearances have existed which included issue 168 which is that cover of blizzard sneaking up on a uh, snow serpent which to my shame i own the inked cover to that so I should really have been aware. <laughs> we also uh, didn't talk about the parallels to the classic G.I. Joe special missions issue 20 when we were talking about that arctic mission but let's move on. The hurricane first appearance that I called out in 279 was not a first appearance it also appeared in other issues including issue 115 and uh, 116. And I called out the helmetless wild weasel appearance in the uh, last episode covering uh, 280. Uh, But uh, there has been a wild weasel that has appeared helmetless before in special missions 16. Although I will defend myself that I think that looks like a generic Cobra Rattler pilot rather than our definitive wild weasel, uh, given that there are multiple Rattlers and pilots in that issue. So there we go. Mea culpa. Um, this isn't uh, an error detected. This is a thing that I forgot to bring up. The toys and on the show, the Rattlers are also VTOL, mm-hmm. as with the Hurricanes. I'm trying to, I don't remember if in the Real American Hero run they have been VTOL or if they're more, quote, regular A10s. Uh, I'm because... pretty sure they did, because in, in that first appearance of the Rattler in the book, um, they were sort of in some sort of, they were just kind of a disguised hangar mm. um, on a, that Cobra base. And I might be remembering it wrong, but I kind of vaguely recall the Baroness sort of rising vertically out of that um, uh, 
uh, out that of that base. I ask yeah. because in uh, 279, with all the planes, uh, I sort of get the sense that the hurricane, or the hurricane is VTOL, and the Rattler, uh, either it takes off normally out of that hangar, or we don't mm-hmm. see it. And on sort of a second reading, I thought, oh, are these two planes being treated differently, though they both have that capability? Mm, it might be the size of the Rattler in that, the sort of coming, coming out of that cliffside that it might not be able to utilize its uh, VTOL capability that hmm. would need a larger clearance, whereas the, the hurricane is uh, smaller. Okay, so uh, let's let's move on to uh, to the, the meat and uh, not let our guest uh, be hanging too long because joining us today is a special guest. All right, stop. Whatever you're doing, TJ's back, the airwaves were chewing, rocking. A G.I. Joe podcast interview special, questions will be asked. Will it ever stop, yo? I don't think so, not as long as someone's publishing Joe. Artists, writers, G.I. Joe fanboys, let's get things started and hope we don't annoy our guest in the studio right now. They've come in for a chat discussing when, where and how. Probing, we're going in deep. Anything left, we might as well be asleep. Questioning them about the G.I. Joe history. Unwrapping answers like a whodunit mystery. T.J. Interview. It's G.I. Joe Research Specialist, Diana Davis, codename Wavewench. G.I. Joe fan, curator of the Gallery of Duke. Diana lives in California with husband Cullen, dogs Remy and Glory, and a life-size mannequin of Duke, who uh, apparently is haunted and helps her decorate shop fronts at night. Um, One of those elements might not be true. Uh, (laughs) Hello, Diana. Hi. Uh, Gotta clarify. Poor Remy and Glory passed away last year oh, at around Thanksgiving. Oh, well, bulldogs are not a long-lived breed, although I've had some live for a while. Uh, Remy and Glory just reached an age. One went, and I guess the other didn't really want to stick around without her brother. Uh, we have now been joined by a new pair called Splash and Paloma. But uh, we still have the, the life-size Duke mannequin still there. He's standing in my front room. I, I had the incorrect assumption. I have two names of dogs and two dogs being posted about on uh, on your Facebook profile and uh, conflating the two. Uh, so thank you uh, for for the uh, the correction. Oh, I was no going worries. to I was going to name uh, my bulldogs uh, Hurricane and Rattler and try <laughs> and figure out if any of them could ascend vertically or not. I've I've seen mine do it. If they get scared enough, they do jump straight up, which is pretty surprising for all that weight wow. going right up in the air like that. <laughs> V-top. So um, I want to hear your G.I. Joe origin story. But before we move on to that, and while it's almost in our mind, what's the origin of your Duke mannequin uh, that <laughs> is hanging about at your place? How did that all come about? Well, we it was... it. It started to come together in the Colorado G.I. Joe convention. I can't remember what year that was, but that was the one year I was able to take my husband and the dogs with me because we could drive from L.A. over the mountains through a couple states and end up in Colorado. It was a very nice trip, but we were riding down an elevator for dinner, and I got a text from my sister saying, We found your birthday present! And right there was a picture of her posing with this rather large naked mannequin and I thought that's perfect and and she said do you want it do you want it we found it they're really affordable 
I guess some uh, <laughs> clothing store or, or company was going out of business and my brother-in-law had been checking over for some computer stuff or things for the house and found it. And I said, oh, yes. And of course, Cullen's response was no, no, not at all. No, 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 no. And I said, oh, yes. And uh, once that arrived, they drove it over in a car after dinner, too. So we had been going to my birthday dinner and sitting out in their Cooper with the cut with the top down was this large naked mannequin, which they gave to me in the restaurant. And we managed to haul him off in the car and get him home. And we have a very good um, supply store, uh, Army Navy supply store mm-hmm. called the Supply Sergeant right near us, which manages to also supply some of the studios when they need things as well. And uh, mm-hmm. I managed to pick up a lot of the clothes in there, ordered the shoes online, and just sort of put him together. Just <laughs> put him together. Do you mind if I pause? The dog's ringing the doorbell. I'll be God. right back. That is a sentence that I never thought I would hear <laughs> while recording a G.I. Joe podcast or ever. Uh, our dog has got a ringer on the bell, so it's a, it's a, it's a bell uh, attached to a bit of cord so whenever he wants to get let out he'll he'll ring the um oh. bell. you know it's like a like a kind of sleigh bell type uh, oh okay i thought i thought the dog was outside and was like wanting to come back in oh i don't know yes yes of course, of course but um but my my wife's birthday is just coming up and one of the presents she wanted was an, a new bell for the dog so that he could have a button to press which is both one inside and one outside. So, so to get let outside at the moment, he'll ring the bell. To get back inside, he'll, uh, if we're not paying attention, he'll generally bark, with quite a distinctive "let me in" bark. You know, you can recognise the uh, the intonation of the bark. So, uh, so yeah, we're gonna, I think, uh, <laughs> going to be training the dog to be ringing bells, uh, pushing a button to ring the bell to be let in and out soon. So <laughs> that will be. Um, an educational uh, experience. When my cat wants a ride on my wife's office chair, which has wheels, <laughs> uh, there are two places, one in the kitchen and one sort of by the dining room table where he'll stand and just sort of look insistently. I'm back. Sorry. We trained her to ring that doorbell, and it's great, except for she's cottoned on to the idea that it means she goes through a door. So it doesn't really <laughs> matter which door she wants to go through. If she wants to go through a door, she rings the doorbell. Very good. Yeah, I was, we were just talking about uh, dog dog doorbells while you're off uh, off air. So um. <laughs> yeah, they're great. They're useful. But she she's got her nose on that thing like one of those uh, you know Karens in a store ringing the bell for the manager. If we mm-hmm. don't respond, she starts just <laughs> pushing it nonstop. Oh dear, crikey! How many bells and how many bells are there? Is there a choice of around the house? Oh, just I think there's one? a choice of like thirty or forty, and some of them have cute little voices oh, or play little songs. We've just got it on a basic doorbell. So, <laughs> have Where's... you seen that do- that dog um, uh, that's on TikTok and probably other platforms that uh, that has got a whole mat of buttons that you yes. can press to yeah. communicate? God help us if we get her one of those. It shall never stop. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I was just saying to to Tim that um, I've got um, uh, one of my wife's birthday presents is a a doorbell set for uh, going out and coming back in. Oh, uh, see now we didn't put the one outside for coming back in because then it would just be endless. Can you imagine <laughs> she'd be ringing it all the time? You know, mm. one of the weird thing is 
we got one dog first and taught her to ring it. And then mm-hmm. when we got the second dog, the first dog taught the second one to do it. Oh, excellent. But That's yeah, so now she, she plays like little orchestrations on that thing. There she is. Okay, well, I'm back. Anyhow, Duke stands in my front room, and he, he does have a, a little fake gun with a hand on it. And I'm, uh-huh. I just sort of hope that people maybe peeking through the front windows sees, sees <laughs> I mean, he's tall. If he actually had a head, which I don't put on because that would just be creepy. But if he had a head, he'd be about 6'4 or 6'5. And it's it's a kind of a broad-shouldered, standing, ready-to-go figure. So I just might dissuade people. Or just the fact that I have that in my room might stop people from coming in the house. You're, mm. you're, you're never sure. Okay, cool. So that's the mystery of the mannequin, yeah. uh, which, which sounds like a, a Sunbow cartoon. Oh, yeah, um, mystery of the mannequin. So, so let's hear more about your background in G.I. Joe. When, uh, when did you first come across the property and how old were you and how did that all come about? It must have been 83 or 84. It came about with the cartoon, really, and I should be around 10, little kid living in Atlanta, Georgia. I saw it on TV. Um, a friend's brother down the street, had his mom bought him everything. He had everything whenever it came out. And while my parents were not so great about getting me every, I won't say so great. My parents were great in the fact that they didn't get me everything. So I, I, I ended up learning a bit about not always getting what you want. But we could just always go down to PJ's house and play with all of his toys, which we did frequently because he had everything. <laughs> and, but the cartoon was my first love. The first miniseries was it's just fantastic. It looked like some, nothing else really on TV because all the effort they put into it, the, the backgrounds, the voice acting. It was just a great, fantastic standout show back then in terms of children's cartoons. That hooked me right away. And would you have caught that when it first came out? Would it would it have been on repeats? Sorry, I'm not sure of the timings. You know, I don't know. I It could have been either. And back mm-hmm. in the murky days of being 10, which was, I'm not going to count the decades, but it was a while ago. It could have been either, and I wouldn't have known at the time to Mm. to figure out, because when it was first shown, I still believe it was serialized, but it was repeated pretty frequently. Once once a channel had it, I think they sort of plugged it in places when they needed it there. Mm. Yeah, because in in the UK, we didn't get it at all, and it would often be that um, things would air once, and that would be it if you didn't see it. (laughs) <laughs> you wouldn't get another chance um and you know and that was before vcrs and things as well so um cool so then did, did you cotton on to the um collecting the the toys and the comics and things like like that after discovering it through the, the cartoon it it trickled in slower uh the cartoon was easy because i didn't have to buy anything and having mm. a parent that did sort of say you know you need to save your own money and even then what are you spending it on uh the toys came, the comic came somewhat after that, and then I ended up with a subscription, so I didn't have to go to a comic store. Ah, mm-hmm. Although, once we moved to California, there were some really great comic stores out here. In Atlanta, I can't even remember if I went to a comic store or just had the comic sent to me. And I must have worked that out through PJ and his mom, because I'm sure he had a subscription too. Back in the <laughs> 80s, that was the top comic book Marvel had for subscriptions at one point Mm. in time yeah very popular 
Diana, what was your first issue or what were the first issues that made an impression? The first issue that really made an impression on me was uh, the one Russ Heath drew. Uh-huh. 24. Yes. And you know why? I, I really remember why. It was, it was the first one. I liked them all, but that was the first one where I opened it up and I'm like, oh, it looks exactly like the cartoon. <laughs> It looks exact, and of course we all know why, because Heath drew the, uh, all the, most of the model sheets for the first miniseries and many after that. But it not only looked like the cartoon, it was just, it's a pretty good issue. And it's also one where for the first time in, in a while, and probably one of the rare times, uh, Storm Shadow had his, his, his fanny. Oh, oh, we can't say that in English. <laughs> Storm Shadow had his ass handed to him. <laughs> by roadblock and that didn't happen often so it, it it was notable for a few things very good crikey huh. yeah, save that for, for innuendo uh, please ah, there we go <laughs> and when... you know i should know that i should know better diana i have always bought my comics at stores or briefly on a newsstand or through mail order and i did for a time subscribe to one Marvel comic just sort of for the experience of getting it in the regular mail and this was around 92 and uh, it was a little beat up by the time it got through my door slot uh, my mail slot because it came in a bag with a very thin piece of paperboard um, do you have memories of your issues of G.I. Joe coming in the mail in good condition or not uh, I got both when I first started getting G.I. Joe, they didn't use the bag. They actually had a little piece of brown paper that was wrapped around. And I don't remember what was holding on the top and the bottom. It was like a little brown paper sleeve that I kind of preferred the brown paper sleeve. It had more substance than the, the, the poly bag, the little plastic. It wasn't even poly. It was like a thin, cheap plastic that was heat sealed at the top with that yeah that tiny piece of paper in there and my mailman it depended upon who was delivering the mail and who the the comic had seen through the process so sometimes it arrived amazingly pristine sometimes it arrived a little mangled it, it just depended upon whose fingers got on it that day <laughs> yeah i wonder if uh, in the mail rooms there were a few a uh, few of those comics being um read on breaks by the mailman you know, some interesting things have managed to make it through the mail. So I, some, I, I get, it also depends upon what kind of day they had. If they just had a really horrible day, that comic just, yeah. So <laughs> Diana, as a Joe fan, you are known for your love of the character Duke. And uh, this is a two-part question. Um, is it as direct as, well, he's the star of the first miniseries and he's a big part of issue 24 and those are early sources for you uh is it that direct and then the second part is um do you associate with a certain version like comics duke or toy duke or is it all duke to you well for the first part of your question it's a little more complex than that it it has to do with the cartoon i saw the cartoon first and I remember as a little kid, when my sister went to their friend's house or we went to visit, 
family friends. There were a lot of older brothers in my life, and uh, I, I tended to be left with the older brother. And luckily, most of the older brothers were really patient. So I had a lot of good relationships with older brothers. I didn't have an older brother. Um, and I think this is just looking back on it after after years and years. I think that probably had something to do with it, because that tends to be Duke's role in every medium he's in, even though the character's different in each. He he's, he's, tends to be that older brother type of character who's watching out for everybody. But on the face of it, when I watched the cartoon, the voice was instantly recognizable because Michael Bell was the voice of the 80s, the parquet. But he also was the voice of one of the more popular cartoons back then for kids a little younger than I was then, when I, but I was right in the age grade, age range when it came out, which was called the the Puppies Adventures or the Puppies New Adventures, <laughs> you know. And when I was five and six, this was the thing. I'd gotten the Scholastic book at the Scholastic Book Fair, one of the few I was ever, uh, allowed to buy, and the voice, the cartoon was great. And there had been a character named Duke in the cartoon, voiced by Michael Bell, which was like a golden retriever or something. And there, there he was, just not in dog form. Now there's Duke in person form, kind of the same role fulfilled in the dog cartoon as this one, only a lot more fleshed out as a human being. And, Wait, was and he, I, he was called Duke the dog as well? Yes, the dog's name was also Duke. You can probably find a picture of him. And Michael Bell voiced him slightly differently. But Bell's voice is recognizable in pretty much everything he does, although he will do different characters who have different takes and accents so that 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 linked me to the cartoon but then the character is also just kind of intriguing and i think being able to look back and sort of psychoanalyze it duke filled that that older brother role i was used to where i often got dumped in the care of the older brother who tended to find lots of fun things like a magic monster maker look at this let's make some monsters or let's go and <laughs> go for a walk and walk the dog or do something and luckily for you know a kid that age it was always a positive interaction but uh that's probably what happened duke in the comic book is different than duke in the cartoon mm -hmm. a lot especially back in the 80s he's sort of changed a lot in the comic over the years as larry's got his his mind around the character but it is a very similar role. But it's just that's what started. I, I I find that people tend to simplify the character a lot. I don't know why, because there's there's probably a bit of complexities to him. Especially you bring up the movie, all of a sudden there's a half-brother, and okay, so what happened with Dad? What's going on there? And, and in the movie, they, they plumbed a bit the depths of the, the fact that there's this younger half-brother and the relationship isn't necessarily you know, a perfect tra-la-la cartoon re relationship. It's more mm. like a real one. You're my younger brother. You're my older brother. I kind of don't like you. You <laughs> make me tired. Well, you piss me off. Look at you bringing your girlfriend into the prison. That's just what you do, isn't it? You know, so that, that, that's a, it's, it's, it's a character I find pretty realistic. And I don't, I don't think he's as simple as people make him out to be. Although he certainly looks like he could be the Boy Scout character. I think there's more to it. And in the in terms of your collection of of Duke collecting, is is that because you uh, sort of love Duke the character that much, or or is it just be, it's become a collecting niche that you go, yeah, you know, that's my, that's my thing. I collect uh, I collect 
Duke, and uh, I'll I'll stick to that category. I mostly because I love the character so much. Uh, when you start collecting GI Joe, there is a lot to collect, mm-hmm. and I only have so much space in my house, and I only have so many spaces on my walls, which is already used up. But you have to. And then now and again, things stop. Like, okay, where are the toys? They're hard to find. They're gone. They're not on shelves. They're back on shelves. They're off shelves. They're on shelves, but they're hard to find. So when you collect things like sketches, especially commission sketches, there's never a lag. The only lag is, can I afford a sketch? Is there Mm -hmm. a a chance to get a sketch? Yes. No. Whichever. It, it (laughs) It can ebb and flow. And... I like asking different people to draw the same thing to see their take on it. Cause you also learn a lot about the artists that way. Mm-hmm. I and could then... go on about Duke for hours. So you're going to have to stop me now. You've started <laughs> well, me. This is the problem people face is they ask me one question and half an hour later, I, I take a breath. Notably Duke is not in issue 281. No, no. I think people thought I would demand him in every issue. And uh, I've, I am like, 40-something, and uh, I, I've learned to maybe not issue demands quite that way. I've asked. Um, I was just thinking, before we get too far up to, to date with where your current position, um, just how did uh, uh, 10-year-old uh, Diana uh, get to where you are to, today? Did um, G.I. Joe always continue to play a, a part? Did you Have you followed it through throughout, or has you kind of dip, dipped in and out of the various... Uh, iterations because yeah a lot of a lot of gi joe in between uh now and uh 1983 it it's ebbed and flowed uh but it's main it maintained its strength for a long long time then the cartoon disappeared after the movie which was sad it disappeared because honestly corner cutting which was a shame and i didn't know it at the time and then the dic cartoon came on and i, I gave that a try and it, no corner cutting <laughs> shows you get what you pay for really in terms of of cartoons and writing although some of the same writers and and some of the voice actors carried over not a lot and it went from a cartoon that was written it almost seemed like the the script writers were entertaining themselves as much as anyone else so it wasn't ever written down to children when the writers at sumbo was doing it they didn't think children were idiots and i'm not sure i, I know christy marks did a few um scripts for DIC and those stood out and a few other writers did but a lot of the DIC cartoons were just the kind of thing that GI Joe hadn't been they were they were dumb they had Scarlet whip out credit cards and go shopping and Duke carrying the bags and like oh so many shopping bags that's not what you wanted from a card and that's why GI Joe appealed to a lot of girls back then I think is we we were getting tired of the this is what girls do and we we have friendships Mm -hmm. which is fine there's nothing wrong with friendship but when you're a girl you get tired yeah you know (laughs) you, you want you want adventure rather than shopping and friendship and holding hands you want as much adventure and you kind of get tired of pastel colors after a while too so but that that sort of i had the comic and i had Mm -hmm. my toys but then when you stop playing with toys again Mm -hmm. i had parents who wanted me to watch my money which was a good lesson back then but i wasn't able to just collect non-stop so for a while the the it it sort of got just to reading the comic when i got it Mm mm-hmm and maybe writing childish fan fiction. And I continue to write childish fan fiction to this day. (laughs) 
so it, it, it sort of ebbs and flows as Joe ebbs and flows. I missed the Valor versus Venom days in terms of animation and things coming mm-hmm. out. I, I, I really loved Resolute when it came in because it, it had that Sunbow flair to it, but it seemed to have grown up like I did, which was nice. It's a shame there wasn't more of that, but then, of course, the writer of that's gotten himself into a bit of hot water, so we're probably not going to see more G.I. Joe from him again. When uh, IDW brought back the comic with issue 155 and a half and 156, were you on board? Not right away, because getting into the IDW comic had been... It, it was kind of difficult to follow because they jumped back and forth. But uh, I had read the issues and then I, I picked up, I forget which issue it was I picked up. And then I went and instantly got all the ones I'd missed mm. and picked it up from there. And it was good to see Larry back. Because we had the Devil's Due and I had majorly gotten into I was there in the beginning in Devil's Due. So back when you could be on their message boards and they were mm-hmm. showing up at cons and you chatted with them. I, I remember one con, uh, my husband and I made uh, Yojo Cola and then we made a hard grape soda and we packaged them up and took them to the con and just handed them out. <laughs> Brilliant. And that was some hard grape soda. It tasted, it tasted sweet and like candy, but after the first bottle and halfway through the second, you realized, oh, this is pretty strong. Did you this, stick This is with... alcoholic grape soda, is it? Yes. <laughs> Did you stick with the Devil's Do run through its entirety? Most of the way. I I it's so far back and I've read so many comics since then. We did I did most of the way through and then I just sort of there there were parts of it that just kind of got a little crazy. I've now gone back and reread the issues that I missed. There were things that I agreed with. I think it's cuz they've said, "Well, we're going to put elements of the cartoon in it." And they did. And then it sort of went off the rails as they tried to figure out their place. And there were some really great, I mean, Brandon Jerwa's run on that was fantastic. Um, I remember when it, Chuck Dixon took over at one point and it seemed like it was a rush to the end. I guess that's when it had been canceled and they just had to get the last few issues out. Yeah. And uh, Chuck Dixon is an amazing writer, but I did not like what he did with it. And that's just a me thing. It, it's probably because he ended up having Duke stabbed. But it, it's also the character <laughs> hadn't... The arc of that story had been going one way, and then very quickly it's like, no, this is happening there, the end. Yeah. Uh, along, along the way, as you were uh, often, and often reading G.I. Joe comics, are you also, in the last 20 years, going to a comic book store weekly or monthly or occasionally? Are you buying other comics? We do buy some other comics. I'm not as big of a comic head as many, but I do keep up with standout comics. Uh, everyone's reading Saga, so we've kept up with that, which of course is now on hiatus. A comic book shop has opened up. I've got a lot of comic book shops. We do on free comic book day. We can get on our bicycles. We go get breakfast. We ride to one comic book shop. We ride to another comic book shop. We can ride to another comic book shop. We can hit about five of them. So I've got Neil Adams' Krusty Bunkers within bicycle distance, which is nice when Neil pops over. Uh, the one I mainly go to is called The Perky Nerd. It's a woman-owned <laughs> comic book just down Say the that street again. The, the Perky, Perky Nerd. Nerd. Yep. N-E-R-D. Okay. <laughs> yes. Perky could mean not, you know, everyone's minds leap to two things when they hear the word perky. But she means a slightly <laughs> less, you know, slightly more pg 
kind of perky. Mm-hmm. But it's it's woman owned, and so I'm not forcing an agenda. But there's a difference between a comic book shop run by a woman and one run by a man. It's not that men aren't invited; they are all the time. They do Star Wars leagues and things there. But it's it's she she has a, a like a woman's comic forum now and again where women can just meet and talk. And it's not like it's all, Oh, we're reading my little pony and Barbie comics. No, it's, it's just a different kind of point of view. It also is, it's a little more comfortable a space sometimes for women to meet on Moss and not have to worry about, you know, jumping through hoops and answering questions to make sure we're okay. You, you don't have to answer a question about what is your favorite issue? Blah, 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 blah. You may pass. That is an appropriate <laughs> yeah. comic answer. I allow you to be a nerd. You're not one of those fake nerds, which is a, a an invented term. There's no such thing as a fake nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Very good. Um, so uh, yeah, in this in this um, history uh, chronology of where getting where you are today, um, this isn't the first time that you've uh, met Tim uh, virtually on this. Uh, um, uh, podcast. Um, t- tell tell me about uh, tell me about um, your history t- t- together. When uh, do you remember uh, meeting for the first time and sort of uh, you know interactions you've had online and through Joe conventions? Because of Tim's book, he always manages to make it into and all through Joe conventions. And Tim stands out in a lot of Joe conventions, which have been at times some wild and inc- there are some interesting things that happen at Joe conventions. It's always worth going to. But, you know, Tim comes in, he loves all things comic and all things Joe, and he doesn't care whether you love the cartoon or the comic or the toys because he's interested in all of it. And he also is able to speak about comics in a a, a slightly different way. So the best thing about Tim is he learn he he talks to you and not at you. Mm-hmm. So I always I always like chatting with Tim because it's an actual conversation. And, and we can geek out about what we like, which in the Joe fandom doesn't always happen. A lot of times the conversations are starting to turn to, like you were, you were mentioning earlier, a movie's coming out. And it must movies, suck. It might, <laughs> why is he not wearing a mask? must wear his mask 24-7. Snake Eyes has got to have... Why is his face so good looking? Why? He's blonde. He's uh, blonde. Maybe okay, he enough of that. Here. Let's get on to an important subject, the size of the Baroness's boobs. Uh, Sorry, Diana. Um, Tim. Diana said something helpful and thoughtful to me at um, the first JoeCon where we met in person. I think we were having breakfast, and uh, um, you said uh, because we we were talking about you know people who like the comic or people who don't, people who like the toy or people who don't, and some of the criticisms. And you said there's no right way to be a fan. Or there's no uh, there's no there's, wrong way to G.I. That's Joe. it. There's no wrong way to be a fan. And uh, I'd like to think that I always had that idea in the back of my mind and that would inform my fandom and my critique and my interactions with other fans. Um, but it's it's such a perfect, short and helpful idea. Um, you know, like I'll, I'll go into like Joe fan mode and I'm like swimming in my own experiences, right? It's like, well, you know, I've read all the issues and I know I've forgotten a lot of them, but uh, I've read all the issues. Uh, I'm less tuned into the toy. Um, 
uh, I'm thinking of the animation all the time and I'll bump into someone who is there for cosplay and maybe they buy some toys and the comic and the show mean nothing to them. Like maybe animation and comics mean nothing to them. And there is a place for both of us at this convention and at this metaphorical table. Um, and uh, so that Diana saying that there's no wrong way to be a fan uh, that, that sort of echoes around in my head every every few weeks when I'm blogging or when I'm seeing someone express a strong opinion online. And it's true. I make fun. But if somebody doesn't like something, that's fine. If if your Snake Eyes is, is locked in to either the cartoon Snake Eyes, who break dances and dresses as Boy George, never talks, and is pretty much a mystery the whole way through, or your Snake Eyes is the comic Snake Eyes and cannot be the movie Snake Eyes, or your Snake Eyes is the movie Snake Eyes and can't be any other Snake Eyes, or you just mash your Snake Eyes all together and he's a bit of everything. People are upset because they have an idea of what G.I. Joe is in their head that they have had there since childhood That that is a very dear to them thing. And they get that upset because they feel kind of pushed aside, I guess you could say. Like, okay, well, you're not important anymore. And that hurts, you know, as much fun as I make because it, it does sometimes get tiring when people are negative and never positive. It hurts to feel like what you love is now being just sort of thrown out. And so when people, as someone who, that's the dog snoring, by the way, as, as people had made fun of me in the beginning, like the cartoon, oh, that's not real G.I. Joe. And I heard that a lot. And a lot of cartoon fans heard that a lot from the beginning on. That's not real G.I. Joe. And Kirk Bazigian has always said there's three in the beginning G.I. Joes. People used to think there were two. He's like, no, there's three. There's the cartoon, there's the comic, and the toy is actually separate from both. And that, that helps to, you know, that, that helped me with that. There's no wrong way to do it. There's no wrong way to love it. What we should do and what I enjoy doing and what uh, the conversations I have with Tim and a lot of other people are like, this is cool. I like this and this is cool. And you, you share the cool parts of it. Oh, yeah, that's so awesome. And, and that's way fun. I, I don't like getting bogged down in what people don't like. But I understand it because I know what it feels like for people to go, well, your ideas are just stupid. And it's hard with social media not to get involved in the, why are, you know, I don't like it when you complain. But you've got to hear their complaints and understand that they're upset because they love this thing for so long in a very particular way. And they kind of feel like, well, that's not what I see in my head. And maybe people can't just say, I feel sad and pushed aside and as if my opinion doesn't matter, which is a very valid feeling and is sort of, you know, it hurts. It's it's like when you get older and you realize that people in stores are not rushing up to help you. You're no longer part of the demographic and that's kind of painful. So which is why it's way more fun when you're a fan of anything to, to say, this is how I see it. And for the other person to go, wow, that's cool. This is how I see it. And then you share all the uh, positive, fun parts of it. And it's just way more fun. How did you become research assistant and then more recently, research specialist for the IDW comics. When I go to cons, I talk to people. Everyone does. Duh. That doesn't make me special. But I, I, I sort of find people that I've met online and we chat and I, I talk about other things. And so, and then I guess I kind of do stand out 
probably because I never shut up, but I, I, um, I stand out to people's minds. Maybe there are fewer female fans. There are not many fans who focus so specifically on one thing, but I, I also, because I try to keep on top of at least a little on the surface of all the things that are coming out, I also, you know, chat with Larry and chat with other people and we've met a few times and taken him out to like if he comes out to California and we're at a con we've now and again gone to meals and talk about things and I don't get the idea in my head that you can't talk to people that oh no you can't ask ask him that I'll always say well I'll come back when you're free or if I have a question I'll just flat out ask you that may be the reason that when they needed help they were going over people's in their heads who they remember who had communicated with everyone on the team or at least most of the people on the team and some of the artists all i really know is that i got an email out of nowhere uh from tom waltz saying you know we need a little we, we want a little help um we've we just need someone to help us keep track of things and uh, larry mentioned you larry asked for you would you help us and you don't get an email like that in real mm. life <laughs> yeah, no, so I, I, I'm not going to say no to that. So I said, sure, heck yeah, you know, mm. I will. And I wanted to, I, I actually just recently double-checked with Larry. Like, y- you did, right? This is how that happens. Like, yeah, yeah, you did. I'm imagining this. Yeah, I asked them to bring you on board. And again, it's it's just thanks to the G.I. Joe conventions and a bunch of people getting together every year and the fact, you know, social media does help in some ways. I managed to somehow ensconce myself in people's brains a little as, oh yeah, that girl. Yeah, that that woman. And what I don't know, I can look up and getting to the age of 40 something. My memory is not always perfect, but thankfully, Joe fans are so rabidly into collecting, memorizing, cataloging, uh, describing that if anything I can't quite remember, I can look up. Um, mm-hmm. You can look up the comics. Uh, IDW, of course, has the, the classics all bound up. But you can also get some really great descriptions. There are great websites online mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. have catalog. Th- for example, yojo.com has been the go-to. And trust me, if someone doesn't know what a vehicle is or a character is, they used to find it on that. There have been issues with that. And it's now uh, the, the creators have lost... Oh, dog. The creators have lost um, the control. But... Carson Metaxas from 3djoes.com has gotten together with them and they're going to try and get as much of it back up mm-hmm. online yeah. as they can so that you've got the comics, the vehicles, you've got that there because they're not sure the old site's going to be viable or stay up. So, And, and people like that, um, anyone who does any research, for example, Tim's book, once it's out, will be a great way to look stuff up and just read over the past few decades of Joe history, I can find it. And luckily I, you know, being in front of a computer and looking stuff up does not take as long as pre-computer days. So as, um, as research, uh, research specialist, you're, you're doing some continuity checks, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're helping to, cause writing and editing and drawing this book is so hard cause they're 500 characters if you count vehicles and there are costume changes and there are character changes and deaths so a lot of this is down to continuity check right most of it 
originally it was for dead men walking. When you've got a book with so many characters that you've written for so many decades, you're not going to remember every single one that died or, or possibly went elsewhere. And there were, you know, Larry writes as he goes. He's famous for, I don't know what's going to happen on mm-hmm. the next page until I get there. So there had been a few people who had come back a few times. And, you know, it, it, they were there because they fulfilled the role in the story perfectly. But it, it didn't, you know, we have fans who, you know, have, again, loved so much that they have memorized things completely. And they're able to reach into their boxes and pull out the issue and go, look, there he is. So they, they brought me on to help with that. But it, it also can do with, like, if a character is colored slightly wrong. I can say, well, he's missing the silver stripes. Like Techno Viper, for a while, we had to keep making sure we got the silver on his helmet. Uh-huh. Um, crazy Legs, we had to make remind, you know, he's still dead. Is that <laughs> Crazy Legs right in the middle there? He's still dead. But he looks a lot like Dusty. And that's sometimes, they don't ask me to do that. But if I know a character that could fit there... Mm-hmm. And someone who's either not supposed to be there or is somewhere else. And even I, I, I miss stuff too. You know, I do. Of course I do. We're all human and sometimes stuff mm-hmm. gets missed. I, I try that. So Diana, you're, you're, you're reading the plot and you're also looking at the art and you're also doing a color check. You're seeing this yeah, at three I stages? Get, I get, every, oh, there's multiple stages. It's, it's, it starts off with basically sort of like figuring out what, if you're in an arc, okay, well... This whole arc is going to be about this, and that's that's already preset. And then the plot will come in for each book. And remember, Larry writes the old Marvel way, so he plots first before he scripts. And sometimes the script comes after the the the, the layouts, so he plots uh-huh. so that the artist can start uh, laying out where everything goes. And he plots very specifically. Uh, there are always notes on his comics saying, you know, um, he uses the minimal dialogue possible paragraphs are generally a panel and he'll spell out transitions and he goes page by panel for the plot so i will get the plot after and i'll know where the comic's supposed to go because i've been included on all the emails which is really nice i mean this has been exciting to see so i'll get the plot i i generally scan over that first off checking it against a list of people who are not alive anymore and figure out okay i that person's fine that person's fine um, then they send me pretty much everything so that I can just sort of scan over to see if people look right. So every step of the way, I'll get it. So I'll get pencils. I even get layouts sometimes just to look over because the emails are all group emails and they go all directions. When Larry sends out a plot, he generally sends out tons of reference for anything new that he's not sure that the artist knows or not. He'll put in the reference for everything, photographs, uh, screenshots, so that the artist will have a good look. And of course, if the artist doesn't know something that Larry hasn't provided, they'll go ahead and either ask him, or sometimes they'll just reach out to me and go, well, what, what does this character look like? Do you have any reference of this particular scene from an earlier book? For example, in um, when we were doing a, a recent article uh, issue that hasn't been seen, I think it is 282, Somebody asked me for what it looked like when a particular character was in a situation that had happened earlier. Uh, so I had to scan back and I found, you know, I found panels of what that looked like so that he could see the setup 
and recreate it because it was a very specific setup that had to be recreated in a, I guess, a kind of a flashback. And he just wanted to see what it looked like so he could recreate it so it would look, you know, that way people like, well, that's not what it looked like when so-and-so did blah, 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 blah. So it, 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 could, it, it runs a gamut. And then sometimes there's a situation that isn't going to work out. And I'll go, well, maybe this, you know, I'll, I'll, everyone tosses ideas into the bucket and they pick which one they like the best. But yeah, I also look at the colors to make sure, again, Techno Viper. Okay, well, it looks good, but there should be like three stripes of silver there. There was one case where in the art, it had gotten quite a long way before we noticed, oh, he doesn't fly that. That's not the, he shouldn't be flying that vehicle. And that one had actually gotten by me. I, I'm not quite sure why. And Larry's like, well, why didn't you notice that? And I'm like, oh God, I'm sorry. But they fixed it. Pretty easy fix. Yep. Or sometimes characters will accidentally swap places and someone will catch mm-hmm. it and then they'll swap it back. And sometimes we miss it, but we can fix it when it gets put into the trades. Like there's a, that scene that I think Robert Atkins talked about where people coming mm-hmm. out of a, an SUV were colored to look like Cobra Troopers when actually it was three Joes. Well, that'll be fixed in the trades, so... Yeah, 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 I get the whole way through. And and so so it's so, so the you started your first credited um, issue is two seven one, which was Snake Hunt uh, Part Six, which was cover dated December twenty nineteen, and and as you alluded to it, it followed a few instances of uh, Dead Joe's work uh, walking. So I so said that seems to be potentially the the part of the impetus at any. Uh, any rate but um how, how has that role I- evolved and, and sort of moved from being this um assistant role to a, a specialist role it's, um is it just being slightly more hands-on and, and um and it's less of a casting an eye over and being more involved in the process i think so originally they asked me just to look for dead joe's walking and again you've noticed you asked me a question i'll go on for a while so when I started, which was, I think I actually started looking over things a few issues before they gave me credit. I, I can't remember back then. But I also would start suggesting, or, hey, how about this? Or, this guy really works. You can easily recolor him this way. Or, wouldn't it be cool if? And so, the, the I think it's it's not so much that they asked me to do more, is that they realized that I was able to do more. And it's a really great, mm-hmm. solid team. I, I'm such positive, fun people to work with. And this is all through emails. But it's it's always about, yeah, let's go. And how can we do this? And and it, it, the, the negatives are not brought up. There's no arguing or irritation. Of course not. It's all over email. And there's a book to get. There's no time for that. But I, I they just told me, we're, we're changing you. You're now special. And I thought, oh, <laughs> thanks. That's great. I appreciate that. And it's really, it is a nice change. And I, I've also been, now and again, I might give a suggestion for, well, I kind of think this might be a good idea. And other they'll go like, yeah, no, that doesn't fit. Or, oh, okay, yeah, that might work. Mm-hmm. We'll see if we can plug it in. And um, just just out of curiosity as well, the, the, in terms of the, the team, you've got the senior editor, Tom Wilson, and editor, uh, Megan Brown is is there a sort of a division of labor there in terms of who who does what or is it just sort of everyone uh, to the to the wheel and and whoever's you know positioned <laughs> um, who's got the time to do a particular thing at a particular time or or you know 
Do certain people do certain things? It, it Mostly they, they, they stick to their roles. Tom does a lot of the driving of it. Megan is there is also uh, making sure things are done right and on time. And they, they're going to be the ones reaching out and saying, we need to do this. You need to do that. Can you do this? Please check this over. If things fall behind, they'll both check in to say, hey, is this up there? If a question comes up, one or the other of them, a lot of times Megan will say, hey, so-and-so has this question. Can you help me answer it? Uh, sometimes the artists just if they they know I'm on social media and that if they if they know me on social media they can message me and I'll generally try and get it to them by the end of the day if I if or earlier if I have time, but it, yeah and then we have like Scott Tipton checks over things at the end he's a, he's he proofreads pretty much the issues if he can do it it's it's pretty well defined people sort of flow over you kind of have to you kind of have to like when you're you're in a time crunch. And I know things have been falling behind for multiple reasons, a lot of them beyond the control of the people working on the book. Um, it, it helps if people can sort of ooze over slightly, but pretty much yeah. it's well-defined. Mm -hmm. And 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 it, this is probably obvious to, to, to most people, but um, you, you talked about getting bit back to them at the end of the day and stuff, that this isn't your day job. This, uh, you do, do, you ha do, do other things um, and... Uh I've recently uh, left my last employment uh -huh. through my own choice. Um, that's not here nor there. But for the past 20 years, I've been teaching special education. So this last year, I've been spending intensive amounts of time teaching via Zoom. I did recently leave, and I won't go into why, because that's not very professional. Not but yeah, yeah, I, yeah, I took a choice and said, yeah, that's that's we're going to have to move on from here. But I do keep busy. Like, I... I mentioned 3D Joe's is is helping by trying to redo yojo.com so the yojo.com people have control over their own content and there's some uh, photoshop work I've been doing for them. Okay. But yeah, I I do it as this is a, a definitely something that I do as well as. It's my mm -hmm. as well as job. It's exciting though. I got to admit <laughs> you never think when you're 10 years old that this is where you're going to end up. I never knew I'd be you know, messaging Larry Hama back and forth about all sorts of different yeah. things. It's it's kind of a great place to end up. Excellent. Yeah. Yeah. Before we move on to the to the issue, whether we can touch on some of the to topics of conversations that we've been been having as we've been going along, and you can maybe give your behind the scenes insights. So, uh, last issue we uh, we had a discussion around uh, wild weasel and and seeing behind. Uh, uh, behind his mask for the what I called the first time and I stand behind <laughs> but um sort of triggered a conversation about whether he's a character or uh, an individual character or a cobra troop are the rattler pilots all called wild weasel and actually just today I was flicking through an issue and I found uh in issue 115 there was a uh, wild weasel that was refer referred to himself as wild weasel 269 which made me think oh actually uh, maybe he's he's uh, yeah 269 uh, of uh, of a, the, the the fleets potentially he's not the wild weasel in, in inverted commas um, I know you you've sort of had some some back and forth with Larry about you know how he sees the character and stuff do you think you can elaborate on that here a, a little I don't know how much I, I can or can't talk about private emails but. Uh, it's it's not a secret. Uh, when we did 281, I believe I think 281 does that has a vapor in it. Yeah. So yeah, Larry referred in the to fang. yeah. Larry <laughs> referred to vapor as a vapor in the plot, 
and I that stood out to me because as a kid, you know, you get the toy, and there's Wild Weasel, there's Vapor, there's Ace, and because Ace and Wild Bill, there there's not like five or ten Aces, mm-hmm. and there's only one Wild Bill for sure. <laughs> You assume, and if you read Wild Weasel's file card that came with his toy, that sounds like the Red Baron, or, you know, an mm-hmm. individual. Talks about um, he doesn't. So. Yeah, and and so when I heard a vapor, I I emailed him. Well, do you mean vapor, or do you do you feel that all the vapors there's lots of vapors, and then there's just one? And he actually responded. Well, I always felt that there you have a class of pilots flying a vehicle or driving a vehicle so there are multiple vapors there may be one or two that stands out but there are multiple vapors and he said i and uh, saying there are multiple wild weasels otherwise who is piloting the other rattlers and that answer sort of again pinged me because oh okay i didn't realize you felt that there were multiple wild weasels i always kind of thought that he was like a single character that that happened and the con and he said well I-, I could see that you might have like multiples like we had there was fred but there were tons of freds so you know we should have like multiple wild weasels with different numbers and as thinking about it and during the conversation i also figured that in my head well you know maybe he doesn't it's like the red baron did the red baron call himself that or did the people who fought him and recognized a a guy who flew and fought a certain way and gave him that nickname. Maybe Wild Weasel is what the Joes call him. I, I don't know, because I, I'm sure there's going to be people like, well, no, Baron has called him Wild Weasel in issue blow. Well, but that's it. And it may not even have been the way Larry thought about it in 1983, but it's 2021. Mm-hmm. And for sure, now Larry definitely feels like, well, they all wear the same uniform, which makes sense, mm-hmm. because in yeah. our military... Everyone flying a plane, they wear that. You know, like there are other guys who dress like Ace, mm-hmm. flying Sky Strikers. It's not like the cartoon where all the Joes can fly because they have that <laughs> Sky Strikers for Dummies book, and they've just scanned over it. And now they know. Um, so it, Larry's explanation makes more sense militarily that Cobra would have guys in that uniform flying that plane, and maybe there's that one Ace pilot for them. And the Joes have given him that nickname, or he's taken on that nickname. And I, I even, at one point, said to Larry, well, maybe they're all weasels, but he's wild weasel. And then, of course, Tom came in and said, that's a great conversation, moving on, because comic book has to happen. So, yeah, it, it that's the kind of the behind the scenes. And again, it took me aback as much as it took anyone else aback that, oh, that I didn't think that you saw it that way, but that actually makes more sense than what I had thought. The sentence that launched a thousand cosplays. The sentence that launched 500 customizations. Wild Weasel leading several weasels. Right. Oh, uh, you'd have like stuffed weasels tied behind you and you just weren't behind them. No, I, 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 mean, I, mean, I mean more specific people in that red uniform and then less yeah, specific people. Yeah, and then people just random people. Uniform. Yeah, and I mean, it, it's definitely been established at various points in the in the book that there are other people in that Rattler pilot uniform that aren't. Well, there's multiple people because that you know that they they've shown it on the on the page. So, 
um, I guess it's it's canon from from that point of view. It's just whether <laughs> then we're just getting into the nitty gritty of a, a naming convention and uh, yeah, a single character that that guy in uh, in issue thirty four. <laughs> when you think about it, the Joes only have one Sky Striker, right? They only have one Conquest. You don't see multiple like the comic the cartoon there's like mm-hmm. here there's a whole bunch of sky strikers and there's and also helicopters flying at the same speed as the sky strikers which always impressed me those <laughs> fast helicopters and all the joes pilot them so they can have tons of them and i guess the joes in the comic had a, a bigger budget because sky strikers have got to be expensive right and mm. ace did keep kind of crashing them so <laughs> you gotta wonder do the, I guess the Joes in the comic don't have unlimited jets because we don't see many other people. Yeah, you're right. It does flying sky tend to be one of a particular type on any mission, doesn't it? Yeah. You don't you don't see them side by by side. Uh, the other discussion we had last time, and I thought I came up with a brilliant uh, no prize for it, was the the timing of uh, where issue 280 was set, uh, following on from the events of. Uh, that that aerial battle in 34 and the reference to springfield in 33 and i came up yeah with the with something that impressed even myself about uh, it was all about the um uh the original publishing order of of the issues of when they were coming out in the the issue 30s that they were a little bit wonky and things were being rescheduled and moved around because of the timing of the uh the dreadnoughts toy appearances being moved and the the footage that they'd recorded for the uh, the animation to go with that of the dreadnought attacking the sky strikers and those kind of things. So things were a little bit wonky in terms of the uh, the publishing order and and maybe it can- canonically um, issue thirty four was actually set before thirty three. And I looked at the art boards and the fact that they'd used white white out and um, renumbered the the issues that some of these were were appearing in. And yeah thought maybe 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 this is an, uh, a no prize but maybe one that actually might have some truth in in uh, the way it worked in in larry's remembering of how the issues played up out but it sounds like the the reality is possibly just a little bit different uh, uh diana well the thing is i think your explanation is probably the right one which is why larry plonked it there in the first place because yeah, that said. issue that issue does stand out it seems almost like a well, we need here, put this one there. Right? Mm-hmm. Because it, it doesn't fit with yeah, yeah, yeah. what else is going on in the book that all of a sudden it, I, I know I've just tried to assassinate you, but now I'm getting in a plane. Um mm-hmm. so I you're probably more spot on. And you've again, you've got to remember that we have read G.I. Joe and remembered everything, including the well, maybe not me so much as others, exactly the order that we received it. Being involved in making a comic book is a little more hectic, and Larry's also done a lot of other comics, a lot of other work, a lot of other writing in between there, and it's been several decades. So it might be that his memory is more of what he physically did, which makes mm-hmm. sense, because he's he, he keeps track of what he does as opposed to what he reads. We, we get it when it comes. He gets it in his head when he's writing it. Mm. And... I had asked him, well, if she 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 sees him and then she's on the stairs with him in the next issue. And if, if someone tried to kill me and I then found him on a staircase back at home, I'd kick him in the danglers. 
you know, I wouldn't have a conversation then, oh, hey, Zartan, where's your motorcycle? Has someone taken it? You know, I don't know. But um, your explanation makes a lot more sense. I, I had asked Larry, well, she, he just tried to kill her, and then he's on a staircase with her a couple of weeks or days or however long the space between this issue and going back to that one is. Well, why didn't she try and kill him? Well, they you know, they both know that they tried to assassinate the commander and he's got something on her and he knows that he he's got less to lose than she does. Mm. So she's more in danger of, of the revelation that they tried to have his son kill him than uh, blood would be. So that was that line. And I, in between that conversation and the book coming out, things might've been shifted a little but I think, I really do think your explanation makes more sense, especially since you went back and saw all the like, just wipe that out. Yeah, I think that subtle difference, actually, that that um, if if there had just been maybe a slight, slight tweak to some of the wording, that would make that would make sense that this, you know, thing that Major Blood is saying that he's kind of got untouchable, that he's got over the Baroness, potentially, if he's alluding to the fact that, you know, that they've been involved in this conspiracy and you yeah. can't you can't touch me because I know this uh, this thing that we did together, and you wouldn't want a Cobra Commander knowing about that. Um, and instead of it's you know see you back at the for the rally, it's see you back at for the tribunal, um, and uh, don't forget I know this about you. That that would make a that would that would tie together a lot more um, uh, in a satisfying way, I think. And I, I believe that's what he probably intended. I I, I do. Because he, he knows more about these people than anyone else. They, he's They're like family. Well, I don't know about family. But he based them on people he knew, and he's written about them for years. But there's there's this old thing where even I, I, teaching you know it too. You tell people, you know the answer in your head. You know it in your head. So it makes sense to you. And sometimes we forget that other people may not mm. be coming from the same angle you are. So where you see the endpoint through all this stuff you knew, they see it from the other side and they only see the point. So sometimes you make something happen because in your head, the explanation all fits into place. But when you're writing a comic course, you have to make it explicit because then people are going to ask. So you have to have someone saying something that makes it clear why that didn't happen. And, and it, it works in, in everywhere. You know the explanation. It makes sense to you because of you, the experience in your brain and your frame of reference. You have to make sure other people have that same frame of reference so they can understand what you're getting at. Like when you're teaching and you write tests and you write questions, you know, and especially if it's like a multiple choice or an answer. Well, the answer may be obvious to you because mm. you're the teacher, right? You're writing the question. You know the answer. You know how to get to it. But you have to make sure that it's a question that students who have just learned the material can't answer. And, we, and although as fans, we've been reading the comic forever and might figure that one out even after the fact, you, you have to make it so that someone sort of with fresh eyes can kind of get where that's going. Yeah. Good. Um, then um, another another question I had, which you might have some insight from behind the, the scenes or, or might not in, entirely. Um, was about this um, return of the the October Guards and them being cy cyborgs. I, um, you know, their their death was such. Um, it's well to a reader seems like like such a, a pivotal, um, you know, significant issue. And and you know that Larry was 
basically the only one that had written these characters. So, so you know, would know them in, inside and out more than any anyone else. Um, the fact that they returned from the the dead seemed a bit a bit strange. So, um, whether that was intentional all along um, with the the kind of the cyborg stuff being part of the plan, or whether that was a way of explaining something that had been over, overlooked. But um, either way, now it's established. It's something that I am uh, very much looking forward to seeing played out because I can see the the story potential for it. Yeah, it's got a great potential, right? I mean, Cobra has access to this technology and those particular characters are useful, powerful characters. So I'm not quite sure, but I, the only thing I can really say is they have to be cyborgs, of course, because we saw them die. Mm -hmm. But... Cobra Boss has the ability to take a bunch of dead people and make an emperor or <laughs> plug, you know, people's memories into something and yeah. create very lifelike looking mechanical creatures that sometimes may not even know that they're mechanical creatures. So the technology exists. That's why they're there. And there has been much discussion about a book explaining that process. And I hope it's, it's up and coming. Mm, yeah, particularly with the the in you know in book canon with with the revanche technology originating or uh, or being strongly linked to to Russia as well, there is there is breadcrumbs there to to be followed. Oh yeah, it it, it I'm excited to read it as well. <laughs> I don't know when that's coming. Right now, we're focusing. You know, they they want to make a big march to 300. Mm. So we're in the Sherlock arc. That's wrapping up. So we're, we're looking at the art of some just hit my box. We're looking at the PDFs of 283, which means, of course, we've got, you know, plot of other issues coming. So I got the, we've got pencils of some issues coming in. We've got PDFs of colored issues, which I have to go over after I'm done here. And so the next arc is being discussed. Mm. And what are we going to cast about? And they've, they've got some exciting ideas. I do know some elements of the next arc that's coming because it's been discussed. What, well, what's, what's this? Where is this? What is in those, those things that they see? Um, so they've got some good stuff coming. Excellent. And there's also a, an anniversary issue I've heard on its way that, that, that should be exciting. So I, I again mm. want to push the October Guard story because I think that, you know, we don't want to get let that get too far in the past before we tackle it. Uh, I can only suggest so much. But I think <laughs> it should be part of what's coming up. And as soon as I get back on the email, I'm going to, like, drop a reminder. Remember, cyborg, cyborg Russians. We need to get into cyborg Russians. <laughs> yeah, because I guess 82, um, 82 was the first issue. So we're not a million miles away from a 40th anniversary now are we? Nope. I was talking with Tom, well, not uh, emailing with Tom slightly. Uh, he mentioned that just a few days ago, like we've, we've got this plan. So they want to do something kind of big and nice. Um, something that you, you touched on um, about sort of Larry's recall of the, the issues and stuff. Do you, do you know if he, if he ever does go back and, and look at the published issues or read the file cards or things like that, or just, is it is it all relying on um what's what's you know his memories of uh, the the stuff uh, a bit of all of it he goes back and rereads sometimes he doesn't want to bother scanning so he asks for do you have the issues where this might have happened mm -hmm. so then either usually megan uh, also me 
Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll go back and find the issues and let him know. She's great at making sure he has a link to, you know, she will send him if he needs it, the issue, mm-hmm. if we can find it or if you can find the frames. Uh, I'm pretty sure he still has a lot of the material. You know, he must have copies of all his file cards somewhere. It's sort of a bit of everything. Mm-hmm. He has compilations of everything to get at, but it's a lot of stuff. <laughs> I think it's worth um, stating uh, so for a, a creative person, right? Like, okay, like an actor does a movie and then we expect to see them dressed up formally for the big premiere and they walk down a red carpet and then they go in and they sit for two hours and they watch the movie they just made. And I think a lot of times after those actors sit down in the front row and the lights go down, some of them duck out the front sort of side entrance because they lived that movie. Like they made that movie for three months or six months. And even though the act of being in costume and shooting scenes out of order is different from the linear story that the audience experiences, um, that creative person has already uh, lived that experience of making or help make that, that creation, right? And similarly, like, you know, I have friends who play music, right? They, they are musicians or they're in bands. I have friends who draw comics professionally and they don't sit around after their album comes out or after like the new issue of their comic comes out and spend a lot of time or maybe any time listening to that album, reading that comic. And if someone's been drawing comics for 10 years or making music for 10 years, if they're spending a lot of time um, absorbing like the last three albums, the last four albums, that's precious time that one, they're not spending on the next album, the next comic, and two, there's a certain navel gazing that can come from that, either worrying that the old stuff wasn't good enough or starting to think that uh, one's old work is great. And what's really important is thinking about and making the new thing. And writing, there are so few analogs in comics, right? someone who has written the same series for 10, 20 plus years. Um, There aren't a lot of examples of that. And I think as fans, we want or expect like, you know, Chris Claremont to know everything from his Uncanny X-Men run at the time that his Uncanny X-Men run was still going uh, or like Stan Sakai on Usagi Yojimbo. And as a as a fan, as someone who thinks about continuity, I think that is a reasonable expectation. It's like, well, you know, I want you to know like what's happened. At the same time, as Diana points out, one, one we're all human, and there's a lot of issues and stories and characters to keep track of. And two, I actually, I don't want someone making the next thing to spend too much time, like, focusing on and worrying about all of the dozens and hundreds of old things because that will get in the way of making the next thing so i think there's a there's an added layer to this which is you know it's like well it's a job someone's got to do like the job it's like yeah doing the job is hard and there's there it's delicate right it's like what are the things that can interfere with getting the best ideas for the next issue the next album, the next movie. That's a totally solid point. We gotta remember that the people making our comics that we love 
have lives and are yeah. people. But also I mean, that they have to if, – if the comic's late, then the fans are going to be upset about that. And like I said, when we got bogged down in this conversation about Wild Weasels versus Wild Weasel – eventually and tom's not like shut up we have to make a comic he comes in and, and like gives us okay here's an issue a few feet down the way that i want you to focus on now so we can keep going and there have been times when reviewing something i'm like hey, look at the size of that and he's like too late too late we gotta go we gotta move there's it's yeah. too late to fix because we have to and it's not like he's rushing but tim's right you know larry wrote this doing a bunch of other stuff it's been decades he's amazing in the fact that he's the single writer pretty much on this comic the whole way through barring some special missions issues but yeah i don't i don't really want him to 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 go back and pour over every little past detail and a lot of actors refuse to even go to premieres or or they do run out some people just refuse to watch themselves it's too painful in a mm -hmm. way it's like an artist yeah. a picture is never done there's just a point where you have to stop drawing it and give it to its new owner or put it up for sale. Yeah. But if you go back and look at it, you'll want to take out your brush or your pencil and like, oh, I could just fix that little thing. Yeah, I think uh, I think there's an expression which it, I might be remembering or might be completely imagining, but something like, yeah, art isn't ever finished, it's abandoned or some such. Um, we've been talking a long time um, and we've not talked about uh, issue 200 <laughs> 281 yet. Um, is there anything else that... Um, Tim, you wanted to, to cover, or, or Diana, you wanted to, to talk about kind of in terms of your experience on, on the book before we move into the, the more detailed discussion of this particular issue. I'm ready for a 281, Diana. Oh, yeah. Warning team, as the sands of time draw to a close, temporal disruption has set in. Remain patient, as in part two of episode 122 of Talking Joe, we pick up with our adventurers Mark, Tim, and Diana as they continue on their quest to discuss G.I. Joe 281. We shall see you then.